0: Welcome to our Soul Food podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We're back in our study in the Gospel of John. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having 5 porches. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Father, we once again thank you that we can turn to your word, for in it is life. It is the light that we need to walk this dark path that this world puts before us. Thank you for everything you've done here already, Lord, with the music, the ordination, the fellowship. Now we pray, Lord, that we return to your word and that we would just just ingest it into our souls and put it into practice. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. What if God took the radical step of setting a deadline for ridding the world of evil? Suppose God announces that starting at midnight tonight, he will step in and stop all suffering caused by evil people. How would he do that? Let's say God decides to use a taser gun. Now, a taser gun shoots an individual with a temporary high voltage current of electricity. The makers of taser guns claim that a shock lasting half a second will cause intense pain and muscle contraction. Two or three seconds will cause a person to become dazed and drop to the ground. Anything longer than three seconds will drop an attacker For up to 15 minutes. The makers of taser guns boast of a 95% compliance rate. In other words, hit a person with enough electricity and you can get them to do anything. (coughs) So tonight, when the deadline for stopping evil comes, God gets us to comply with his wishes by shocking us. Here's how it would work start to tell a lie. And you are hit with a one-second zap. Try to rob a person you get two seconds worth of shock. A would-be murderer would be completely incapacitated. However, knowing that evil thoughts often lead to evil actions, God also zaps us for sinister thoughts. But God's still not finished. Since it's also evil to fail to do good when given the opportunity, God also zaps us for failing to show mercy, kindness, and justice. As a result, people are zapped for doing evil acts, thinking evil thoughts, and failing to do what is right. What would be the result? A world full of twitchy people (laughs) who would obey God like cowering, beaten dogs. Now look at verse 1 with me. I'll make sense of that later. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches. We do not know which feast Jesus was observing when he went to Jerusalem, and it's not really important that we know. His main purpose for going was not to maintain a religious tradition but to heal a man and then use that miracle as the basis of a message for the people. And by the way, in the Bible, no matter from which direction or elevation one traveled, the Bible always says that it is up to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was where the temple was, where worship took place, and where the word of God was taught. Now the name Bethesda means house of mercy, but here it was really a house of misery. I think this is a spiritual description of people in this world. Notice the descriptions. Sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. But before we get into that, if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, I promised to do my best to explain why God allows evil to continue on in this world. What brought that up was back in chapter 4, we saw a young child who was deathly ill. And in today's sections, we'll be introduced to a whole group of people who are, in the words of verse 3, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And that raises the question in the minds of many people. If God is so good, then why is there so much suffering in this world? Now, Of course, this is nothing new. Back in 300 BC, a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus gave us what is called the Epicurean Trilemma. It goes like this. One, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he is not all-powerful. Two, if God is not willing to prevent evil, then he is not all-good. And finally, three, if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? I hope to try to answer that this morning or at least at least give you something to think about. We'll be spending the rest of our time there in verse 3. It says, "In these lay a great multitude of sick people who are blind, lame and paralyzed." Let me first try to attempt to tackle why God allows things like sickness and evil in this world, and then we will unpack the verse at the end. Now, Israel used to ask questions just like this. In Malachi, Israel asked, and God mentioned it. God said, you have wearied me with the words, where is the God of justice? And let me say, having these thoughts doesn't make you a bad Christian. In fact, I think it makes you an honest Christian if you are willing to admit That there are some things that happen that seem contrary from what you would expect a good God to do. I mean, we all say that God is on his throne. But sometimes, in moments of pure honesty, we would think, yeah, I believe God has it all under control. But then we would add just under our breath, but it sure doesn't look like it sometimes. Sometimes we all doubt And believe it or not, that puts us into some awful good company. But it can even be more perplexing than that. Not only do we see godly people suffer, we also see wicked people who seem to breeze through life without a care in the world. In Psalm 73, a man named Asaph had the same questions when he admitted with these words. I'll read them to you. He writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. What is he saying here? I think he's saying, look, I know in my mind and in my heart that God is truly good to those who are pure in heart. But I'll be honest enough to tell you that even with that knowledge, I almost stumbled over the apparent contradiction of the things that I was seeing. Because it sure seems like the arrogant and the wicked are the ones who are enjoying life the most. So what do we do when we feel like that? We should do the same thing Asaph did, because in verse 16 we read this, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. When Asaph went to church, if you will, and pondered it a little more, God gave him one main viewpoint, and it is this. Asaph perceived their end. And that's the thing most people can't or won't perceive. There is going to be an ending to this life. And the most important thing in this life is not how many things we acquired, or even how happy we were along the journey. No, the most important thing is how our life is summed up at the end. Why? Why? Because that will have the impact on where we spend eternity and how we spend eternity. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, I said, you hear it said, if God is a healer, then why are there sick children in the world? If God is peaceful, then why do wars happen? If God is loving, then why do bad things happen to good people? Behind all these questions and others like it is the desire to see God prove himself by taking away these evil things and then we will all believe in him and live happily ever after. If God proves himself by taking away the suffering in the world, then we will be for certain that he is God and we will believe in him. Now this kind of misunderstanding about God has caused a lot of people to turn away from their best and only hope In this world, somehow we can get the idea that Christianity offers us the premium plan. What I mean is, when you get God, you get rich, comfortable, happy, healthy, and safe. Now, Jesus made some amazing promises, but he never promised anyone a perfectly healthy, safe, and pain free life. In fact, he clearly said in John 16.33, In this world, you will have trouble. That's the bad news. Don't misunderstand what God has promised. This is still a fallen world. And in this world, we will have troubles. But remember what Jesus also said after he said that. In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So then... Why does a good God allow evil in this world? Please listen carefully for the next few minutes as I will try to do my best with this. Why does God allow evil? I think I can answer it with just three words. Human free will. The only way God could have made a world without evil would would be to strip away our free will to commit evil. And that would make all of us just a bunch of moral robots. Think of it this way. If you put a shock collar on your spouse, and every time they sinned against you in any way, they were giving a toe-curling jolt of electricity. Guess what would happen? Eventually, at least looking from the outside, they would turn into the sweetest, albeit quietest spouse, on the entire earth. Why? Because they are growing to love you more and more every day? No. Deep down, they just hate electricity a little bit more than they hate you. Now, In any human relationship, you can't have love that is not freely given. And when it's not freely given, we call that rape. And God's not going to rape anybody. Now imagine this conversation. Someone asked whether God was unfair for allowing a child to die from cancer. I could respond, but it's not just this child you're concerned about. I mean, you don't think God should let any child die of cancer, right? I'm sure they would agree to this point. After all, you'd have to be a selfish pig to say you only cared about one child who died of cancer and not others. Then I could point out, it's not just cancer. I mean, you don't think children should die of other horrible diseases either, do you? Then I could ask. But it's not just disease, is it? Am I right in thinking you don't think God should let children drown or be crushed by boulders or be burned in fires or be murdered? Once again, I'm sure they would all agree. But then I could point out that it's not just death. After all, you don't think children should be maimed or raped either. So finally, I could ask, well, if all this is true, if children shouldn't be able to suffer being raped or maimed or to die from murder, accident, or disease, at what age do you think children should be indestructible? Now, at this, most people would start laughing because they realize the absurdity of indestructible children. In fact, when you change the question from why God would allow a particular child to die to why God allows children to die, the question almost answers itself. But let's say someone gives an age that it would be right for God to allow a child to die. Let's say a woman says, I give the ages 12. But this too quickly falls apart. After all, she really didn't think it would be okay for God to let 13-year-olds to be raped, or die, or be murdered, or have accidents and diseases? And if so, is that really any different than a 17-year-old? When those who argue that children should be indestructible until a certain age still accuse God of unfairness no matter where the age was set? But perhaps the biggest problem with indestructible children regards the machinery required to keep these children from being seriously injured or killed. Also, if children were indestructible, then a child's actions wouldn't mean anything. For example, Bobby could be cutting a steak next to his little brother Ralph, and suddenly, without provocation, turns and jabs his knife into Ralph's stomach. Now, God could make the knife turn to rubber right before it touches Ralph's skin. The whole family could laugh heartily at that rascal Bobby's antics. But that is a cartoon world. In such a world, when your kids got on your last nerve, you could encourage them to go play freeze tag on the freeway, promising them you might bounce around a lot. but it's going to be a fabulous time. But in such a world, children wouldn't learn morality because many of their choices would lack moral consequences. And so we see that we can't have it both ways. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. That's just the nature of reality on planet Earth. Now, I suspect the more serious answer will be that God should every day orchestrate tens of thousands of providential occurrences to protect children. But if God constantly worked through providences, then he would have to interfere constantly with people's free will. For example... How does God prevent parents from getting drunk or texting or nodding off when they're driving? How does God providentially keep all children everywhere at all times from the fatal occurrences that might afflict other family members? How would God providentially keep all children from being harmed by the intentional cruelty of adults without them having free will? He couldn't do all of these things unless he were to make his existence unmistakably apparent to even the most hardened skeptic. After all, even the most dull-witted person would conclude sooner or later that there's something about the universe that prevents children from coming to harm. Now, in the real world, parents and their children must learn to be responsible because natural laws do work in regular ways. If God is going to create humans with free will, that allows them the ability to choose the wrong thing. That has to mean that God has to give them the ability to choose evil. This is as logical as it gets. A person isn't morally free unless they can choose to use that free will wrongly. Let me bring it down to a more simple level. You can't tell your daughter she is free to go out with that boy down the street and then chain her up in the basement. And just like that, God is not at fault for allowing evil any more than you would be if your daughter broke out of those chains and went down the street and had premarital sex with that boy. Now I fully realize that probably didn't answer all your questions about why there is evil in this world. But if you would like to delve deeper into it, see me, and I can give you a list of books that examine it more fully than I did this morning. Let's go ahead and look at verse 3 now. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. I'm going to address the moving of the water part in the next sermon. So here at Bethesda, we see a great multitude of sick and hurting people, and they are described as being blind, lame, and paralyzed. Bible teacher J. Vernon McGee visited a sanitarium many years ago where during the Sunday morning devotional service, one of the residents read this passage as, there lay a great multitude of important folk, mispronouncing important instead of imp- impotent. McGee was about to correct him when he realized He was right. The people at Bethesda were important folk. Sadly, in some churches, if you are sick, you aren't treated as important. But instead, you are viewed with suspicion that either you have insufficient faith for healing, or there must be some kind of hidden and unconfessed sin in your life. I will address this more fully in two weeks concerning the false teaching that Christians should never be sick. John described these people as impotent, blind, lame, and paralyzed. What havoc sin has wrought in this world. If you think about it, blind, lame, and paralyzed is a description of every culture globally and of you and me personally apart from Christ. If we are not reborn... If the Spirit of Christ does not dwell within us, we will not see, we will not walk uprightly, and we will not be able to reach out and impact others. Many lay by the pool there, sheltered and covered, but not healed. So too. Although religion can shelter people with good values and disciplines, it has no power to save them. But the sick people in verse 3 also characterize every one of us. The first term is blind. Jesus spoke of this blindness in chapter 3 when he told Nicodemus, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Paul would describe this spiritual blindness in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with these words, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose mind the God of this age has blinded, who do, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. I also think this blindness is a great emblem of the nation of Israel at this time, for they can also not see, nor can they serve the purpose that God had them to be a light to the Gentiles. I read about an article in the Montreal Gazette about a man named Pierre Paul Thomas. He was born blind and could only imagine the world as it was described to him. For years, he walked about with a white cane trying to avoid the obstacles in front of him. But at the age of 66, he fell down the stairs in an apartment building and fractured the bones in his face. He was rushed to the hospital where he had severe swelling around his eyes. A team of doctors there went to to work repairing the bones. Now, months later, he went to a plastic surgeon for a consultation about repairing his scalp. The surgeon casually asked Thomas, oh, while we're at it, do you want us to fix your eyes too? Thomas did not understand, nor did he know how to respond. But not long after that, Thomas had surgery and could see for the first time. Suddenly, his world consisted of bright colors he had never fathomed before. He spoke of being awestruck by flowers and trees blooming. Now, as beautiful as this story of a 66-year-old man being able to see for the first time is, there's also a sad reality to that. He could have had the same surgery at a younger age and been able to see much earlier. But Thomas had assumed such a possibility was impossible and had resigned himself to a life of blindness. When in reality, he could have experienced the gift of sight decades earlier i don't know about you but i don't want to spend any part of my life missing out on what god wants to show me right now it's one thing being blind and not being able to do anything about it but it's the height of tragedy to be blind even though we don't have to be later on in chapter nine we'll read this those of the pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So this morning, I pray for all of us. Lord, open our eyes. Because when people are spiritually blind, they are also paralyzed. That is, no matter what rules and regulations, ordinances and laws are placed upon them, they cannot walk in righteousness and in freedom. Why? They simply lack the ability to do so. Sometimes people say that Jesus is a crutch. He's fine people say for those who are lame and weak and who need a helping hand. But for able-bodied and strong-willed people who can manage on their own, Jesus is entirely unnecessary. I begin my response by agreeing with their criticism. Jesus Christ is indeed a crutch for the lame to help us walk upright. Just as he is also medicine for the spiritually sick, bread for the hungry, and water for the thirsty. But I think that's being way too generous. But a crutch is pretty important if you're a cripple. And we have all been crippled by sin to one degree or another. But I don't think Jesus is a crutch. I think he's more like a stretcher. Because if we go to heaven, it's because the good shepherd carried us there the entire way. So we do not deny this. It is absolutely true. But then all human beings are lame, sick, hungry, and thirsty. The only difference between us and them is not that we are needy and they are not. It's rather that some know and acknowledge their need, while others don't, either through ignorance or they won't through pride. It says they were lame, and they were paralyzed. For I got saved, I was just like that. I really wouldn't describe my life as walking with any real purpose, but I was sort of just wandering through life. I was just meandering from experience to experience, trying to find fulfillment. I was paralyzed by sin and there was nothing I could do about it in my own strength. And there's nothing more frustrating than trying to do something you aren't capable of doing. Imagine being taken out to the pole vault bar when you were a kid. Somebody would say, see that bar up there? The world record is 20 feet, two and a half inches Nobody has ever topped that, but we've set the bar 10 inches higher than the world record. You need to get over that bar or you have failed. Then the coach leaves you to do it. He can't help you towards the goal because he can't make the leap either. That's a great picture of man-made religion and human morality. Everybody you know spends their life running with that pole, stabbing it into the ground, and trying to jump over it, only to end up eating dirt time and time again. That would be a frustrating way to live. Your whole life would be built around attempting to do something nobody anywhere can do. That's what makes religion so frustrating. It bases life on impossible standards then it makes you feel guilty for missing them. And then it leaves you powerless to do anything about it. This is the human race as it stands apart from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So how does God view people before that act in which he places new life within them? Our answer is in Romans 5, 6, which tells us that when we were still powerless, that Christ died for the ungodly. The commentators tell us that that Greek word means infirm, feeble, unable to achieve anything great, destitute of power, and sluggish in doing what is right. In other words, God tells us that it was when we found it impossible to do anything for ourselves spiritually that Christ died for us. So as we finish up, why doesn't God always heal us down here on the earth. It all goes back to free will and the curse that came because of that. Adam and Eve ate the fruit and we've been attending funerals ever since. So to me the real question isn't why does God allow evil? The more penetrating question is why does God allow humans? So, what do we do? Eventually, all Christians are going to receive their healing, which, once again, I will get into more fully in two weeks. But the last application I want us to see is the experience I've described may be true about us receiving healing, even though our actually seeing it may be postponed. They may even be postponed until after this life. We may witness the death of a parent. A friend or a child, or we may experience sickness and sorrow ourselves. But we come to Jesus and find Him saying, I know what I'm doing, I'm working it all out. The Bible says, And we know that in all things God works for the good to those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. There will always be circumstances in this life that we may not see this, even though it is true. Nevertheless, we are to go about our business. We may have to pass through the night into the bright day of the next world before we see how some of our prayers were answered. Still, we are to believe and know that Jesus has heard, and he has answered. Isaiah 53 tells us he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. I love the insight of one commentator addresses this. He writes, Then why do we still get sick? For the same reason we still sin. This is a fallen world, and the kingdom is a coming kingdom. Sickness and sin still stalk our planet, but here's the difference. Neither sin nor sickness will have dominion over God's people. Sin cannot condemn us, and disease cannot destroy us. Guilt is defamed, and death has lost its sting. In fact, the very sin and sickness that Satan intends for evil, God redeems for good. Sin becomes a showcase for grace, and sickness becomes a demonstration of God's ability to heal. He may heal you instantly, or gradually, or ultimately. He may heal you instantly. One word was enough to banish demons, heal epilepsy, or raise the dead. He only had to speak the word, and healing happened. He may do this for you, or he may heal you gradually. In the case of the blind man from Bethesda, Jesus healed him in stages. He took him away from the crowd, rubbed spit on the man's eyes, then asked him what he saw. The man answered that his vision wasn't all the way there, so Jesus rubbed them a second time. Jesus healed the man. But he did so gradually. Our highest hope, however, is in our ultimate final healing. In heaven, God will restore our bodies to their intended splendor. God will turn your tomb into a womb out of which you will be born with a perfect body into a perfect world. And Lord, that is what we all look for We want to be with you. Just like they sang this morning, it is all about you, Jesus. No matter what we're going through, we know that you will redeem it for our good. Either it's to build us in character, to be a witness for the unbelievers. You know what you're doing, Lord. I pray that you would give everybody in here that confidence that we can trust you. For we know the judge of all the earth will always do what is right. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.